Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by James O'Neill of Queen's University Belfast. His paper was entitled Half Moons and Villainous Work, Gaelic Fortifications and the Nine Years' War. So as the title suggests, um, I'm here to address different types of fortifications and defences as constructed by Hugh O'Neill and his allies during the Nine Years' War. Now, it's far more complex to note the forts and structures built by the crime. Uh, this isn't necessarily because they're more numerous, but uh, they're far better recorded as they were symbols of progress in a war against O'Neill. And therefore, they're more likely to be included in dispatches and maps sent to the court. Now, Sir Henry Docker and Derry, in which Bartlett's travels with Lord Deputy Mountjoy, means that we have well illustrated examples here. We have the Blackwater Fort, we have Charmont Fort, and Donalong Fort. It means we have a much better illustrated catalogue of the defences raised by the Crown's armies. And also, because they were the winners of the war, uh, the forts tend to remain, and many were later added to or re edified to secure the plantation in Ulster. This surface uh, of sites uh, still exists in existence in comparison to our structures, has led many historians and archaeologists uh, to assume that fortifications played little or no part in the Gaelic war effort. Um, so we'll just actually go over what was originally seen um, with this award. Thank you. Um, what had come before? Um, so most imposing and enduring uh, in the countryside were the castles and tower houses, and a skill and care. And Bert. Now, while there were engagements and sieges at these sites, notably in Skill in 1594, Kerr in 1589, and Glen in 1600, O'Neill's attitude to their utility can be seen by the fact that he destroyed his own castle in Dugan and ordered his followers to do the same. But some did receive up to date uh, refurbishment of their defences. Burke Castle in County Donegal was described as better fortified in the custom of the country and mounted three four cannon. Much later in the war, Dunboy in County Cork was found to have re- been refitted with thick earth ramparts and bastions, and the towers reduced in height to make them less vulnerable to cran- the cannon fire. Plus, there was also the crowns. Now, these are totally artificial islands or smaller islands that have been built up into larger surfaces, uh, typically circular, uh, built up of layers of stone, paint, and wood. Now, these sites have been around since the Iron Age. But by the 16th century, they were used as residences, strongholds, prisons, and fortified storehouses. Certainly, into the Nine Years' War, they had a defensive volume. Sir Henry Bagwell's attack on McMahon's Crown in 1593 required that he built an early modern version of a landing craft, and even it only managed to force a century in the third attempt. We're, also, we're aided by nice illustrations of these sites. Um, here we have a crown near Van Burr, which we've shown defended with a bass or a uh, Busy sharp sticks cut down, uh, formed like our type of barbed wire, make a rather sticky obstacle to get over. Um, but the illustration at the Crown of Ahar, County Throne, an unidentified Crown here, uh, shows defences of wall on the outside but reinforced with planking and firing loops cut into them. Ahar, in fact, is a composite defence of both masonry covering part of the island and the rest, timber reinforced with cage houses on the corners. And the last that we, we'd seen before, again, here we go, is plashing. 
uh, which was used long before the outbreak of the Nine Years' War. Now, this involved the cutting and intertwining of bushes. Uh, they were not cut all the way through, um, but uh, they were uh, bound together and intertwined, therefore creating living barricades described as well nigh impenetrable. Yes, I know these are modern versions, but unfortunately we don't have any illustrations of, certainly I've never seen any of a 16th century flashing. This is from an 18th century book, and this is a modern illustration. Um, it was noted that the Irish fastnesses were not oak woods, but woods thick with hazel, willow, and blackthorn, uh, and so therefore they could be incorporated into, into a defensive deterrent. Sir Henry Walt referred to the Irish as having their strongholds in woods and rocky valleys, which were placed in many places. But this is what's seen before, but what I believe that at the start of the Nine Years' War, we see a break from what actually came before. And this was Fort. Never really a type of structure associated with the Neil and his allies. They were constructed uh, to fulfil a number of requirements. Some were built to serve as strongholds in themselves, either storehouses or fortified refuges away from major routeways. And again, thanks to Bartlett, we have one of the best illustrations. Um, this was in Ishlaven in County Adam, and it was attacked and taken in 1602. Um, it's shown with an inner rampart flanked with bulwarks and lined with spike holes and firing ports for firearms. Uh, and the defence is stiffened by two towers and was surrounded by palisades and two wet ditches. Uh, but this is actually the most the common one because Barker wrote about it. But Mountjoy actually encountered a similar fort with Terra Lyons and Westmeath. It was described as being surrounded by bogs and double ditches and supplied by a river which flowed on one side, ramparts and gates of earth and timber. And Mountjoy himself described it as fortified with their utmost industry. And in fact, Mountjoy twice assaulted it and both assaults were repelled before the garrison, which was commanded by Captain Richard Terrell, escaped in the night. So they got away scot-free, so it certainly did its purpose. Others were used to secure vulnerable shorelines, as seen here in Loch Ness. Possibly the largest and best illustrated, again, thanks to Bartlett, was the ring of fortifications around Loch Ness. Sir Arthur Chichester had been raiding from across uh, the loch from his base in Mazarin Abbey in the O'Neill's heartland, and in response, O'Neill was reported to be building sconces along the western shores of Loch Ness in May 1601 to intercept these raids, or at least deter them. And to tell you the truth, I know it's no actual accident, you point out where they all are, that all the forts constructed on Loch Ness were built where the rivers flowed into and out of the loch, thereby controlling riverine traffic along the rivers. And Rivers, in many ways, were preferred means of travelling as they could uh, be faster and cheaper means of transporting large amounts of men and goods as compared to travelling on convoys overland. Now, the Irish used these fortifications to actually block these and they were first seen at the taking of Enniskill in 1594. We know that Hugh Maguire built fences on one part of the island and staked the riverbed to control the traffic on the river. And later in the year, it was said that a sconce was erected upstream near Liskool Abbey to isolate the castle. Stakes that were also embedded in the river to prevent boats getting to the beleaguered garrison. While rivers could be used as lines of communications, they were also exploited as obstacles. And again, this is seen in, during the Guard Rebellion in 1583. Uh, Sir Hugh Maguire broke out in the open revolt and precipitated a punitive expedition by Sir Henry Bagnall. Bagnall came face to face with Maguire's men at the fort at Lescoot Abbey, just to the south of Enniskillen, where he found Maguire and Cornwall Barrington was strongly entrenched. The Irish built three fortifications, later described as sconces, to beat the passage and a long deep trench where they placed their shot, this is firearm equipped troops, and Bagnell's army could not cross, as Bagnell excused. 
Without artillery or other implements to win the place, it was not possible for us. Remember, he's got actually the entire fleet force uh, in Ireland at the time, so uh, it must have been quite an obstacle. As Bagnall moved further on down the area, he found sconces on islands of Bul- and at Balik he discovered more defences which, again, what he described as were fortified in front and flank for their own defence and for our annoyance. And here we can zoom in on it there. Uh, the, the, were, uh, the illustration shows the Irish right flank anchored on a circular sconce just here and then there's breastworks coming around the headland here. But luckily for Bagnall there was no real attempt to defend them as the Irish pulled out uh, while the assault was underway. Sconces were built at Rathgrom, County Wicklow, uh, to hold the crossing of the Avon Moor. And the only detailed illustration of one of O'Neill's river forts was the Blackwater in 1597, when Lord Deputy Burr launched an assault on the fort in July. Now, as you can see, it's got two flankers, a curtain, and a shoreline defended by four scores, described cases, long, and two men's height, uh, and written down as a wall of great stakes, hard and walled. Described by Richard Sore, it's difficult to break into, even without resistance. But truly, the apogee of one of these river defences was at the same place four years later. Uh, again, recorded by Bartlett, thank you very much, Richard Bartlett, uh, in his Blackwater Valley run. Uh, described as trenches made by Tyrone at every ford along that side of the river Blackwater to impeach his lordship's passage over the same. And all the way along here, you can see the little dots marked in the and these were O'Neill at dug trenches, the busy to hold the line of the river. It's just slightly closer there. You can see them here, just at the cross, the ford crossing. Viewed by Mount Joy on July 1601, fortified and entrenched themselves very strongly. They were considered by Mount Joy to be too strongly held to be attempted during daylight. He opened up in the trenches to light cannon fire during daylight and he built uh, blinds and gabions to cover the approach of his troops. Now, the assault was led by Captain Thomas Williams uh, and after several hours the Irish retreated. Now, to put this in context, Captain Thomas Williams is probably the hardest case that uh, Mountjoy ever had. He was actually the captain that held uh, the Blackwater Fort. He was first in the trenches at the Moray uh, and he would have been probably concealed when he got wounded in the census, but it's your stereotypical hard case, the Elizabethan hard case. But he was the one that was ordered to go in uh, and try and take these trenches. But as I said, the Irish retreated after several hours. In addition to holding rivers, O'Neill was threatened by hundreds of miles of open coastlines. The maritime superiority of the Crown meant that the coast of Ireland was an open flank that could and did leave O'Neill and his allies vulnerable to amphibious landings. In response, they attempted to use fortifications to address the issue. Now, certainly at the start of the war, there wasn't much call for uh, as things were on the back foot, uh, but as they went on the offensive, they began to appear. Right now, O'Neill and O'Donnell built fortifications along the shores of Loch Ness, or sorry, Loch Foyle, in order to impeach threatened amphibious landings by forces under Sir Henry Docker. There had been notice being constructed by the locals in June 1589 and again in April 1600. Detail found the Salisbury manuscripts uh, uh, have given us details of uh, what was built and it was reported that O'Neill and O'Donnell had planned to hold the enemy at a beachhead and pits were dug 20 yards from high water mark to protect their pike and swordsmen from naval gunfire and they in turn were supported by shot placed in trenches in the rear. 
when the English landing boats approached the shore, they were to be assaulted as they landed, where the cannon of the ships would do as much damage to the landing force as they tried to fire. The plan required an estimated 68,000 men, so when Mountjoy drew only into the south, it is understandable that the plans came to naught and the landings were relatively unopposed. The rapidly constructed beach defences of Captain Turrell uh, and Dunboy were also another case, and here we have an illustration of them. <coughs> were shown in, in Pacat Hibernia. Rather than directly assault them, Carew made a diversionary stand opposite the defences while the landings were made further to the north. Now, what Carew actually did was he had two regiments foot stand on this side of the island and pinned Turrell's troops here, and then he made another landing just here where he landed another two regiments forcing Turrell to pull out. But what we can actually see is Turrell has a much smaller force. But uh, Carew is still willing to commit half his force, which is much superior, in a diversionary effort, rather than assault them directly. So that gives some idea of exactly how strongly the beach was held. But what we also see is a massive expansion in these flashing. Now where before it was used to defend fastnesses, now it was used to limit mobility and isolate crown garrisons. The road to Maribor was blocked by plashing at Blackford. And the road through the Curlews, Tobermesson on the Blackwater and the Pass of Cashel were all plashed. Plashing was used to cut the route between Athlone and Morris Common in August 1600. And over 3,000 trees were cut to block five miles of the road at Mobilia in County Cork. But in addition to the barricades, these were now being fortified for defence. Sconces were built to defend the plashing in Morris Common, Blackwood and Cashel were all heavily entrenched. This demonstrated that rather than simply relying on the entire effect of the physical obstacles, O'Neill and his allies were intending to defend them. What we also see is strong linear defensive positions were being built to directly confront advancing Crown forces. These were not seen before 1599. Most likely at this time the Crown forces were very much uh, on the defensive and the extensive defensive works were not a priority for O'Neill, who was busy raiding Connaught and the Pale and later inciting a revolt in Munster. Indeed, it was to his advantage to leave the main routes into Ulster by Ballyshannon and the Murray open as it provided more damaging than the Crown's war effort than his. But by 1599, the escalation in the Crown Army, where it expanded to over 18,000 foot and a horse, uh, we now have advances that, such as Clifford's attempt to relieve Colony in August 1599, but he ran up against the fortifications in the Curlew Pass. They were described as barricades with double flanks. In April 1600, Sir Oliver Lambert was confronted by 10 half moons blocking the Tober that led to Philipstown, County Offaly. And here we have this is actually from the Siege of Ostend, but these are military terms used by military men, and this is a half moon. Uh, it might have been slightly structurally different, but essentially you're looking at uh, a U-shaped uh, earth structure. Uh, and th these were uh, systematically set out to block the only line of advance to October. But it was Mountjoy who was repeatedly confronted with linear defensive works. The first was during his expedition to Armagh in May 1600. His stated intention was to provide a feint to draw on east south to allow it. Uh, to give Henry Dockers and previous landing force breathing space to establish their positions on the void. Trenches had been constructed to the south of Loch Lurkin, running between, this is near Margaret Hill in County Armagh, uh, running between a bog on one side and a wood on the other, described by Mountjoy as extremely strongly entrenched towards the plain, no, towards the plain, not some fastest, not out of the way. <coughs> this was directly in the route of Mount, where Mountjoy needed to go. While Mountjoy and others condemned O'Neill for not fighting in the open, they were not fully to attempt O'Neill's fort to force O'Neill's defences. Mountjoy later claimed that his sole intention was to divert O'Neill and he had not wished to go any further, but prior to his march north he noted they intended to plant a new fort at Armagh. 
But by the end of the summer, Mount Derry was not as relaxed as he had been in May, as he would come under extreme pressure from their Kirby Council to get the results. At the end of September 1600, Mount Derry's army advanced from Dundalk, but O'Neill was determined to hold them in the Moray Pass. The weather was appalling, and despite camping in Fogger Hill on the 20th of September, the first main engagement didn't occur until the 25th, when a forlorn hope of 100 picked men under Captain Thomas Williams, again, entered the pass under the cover of mist. They rapidly were around the first sentry, sentries on the first barricade, but after reaching another approximately 60 to 90 yards further into the pass, they were hotly engaged by the Irish and forced to retreat. Williams discovered that O'Neill's defences were bar three barricades, each a calibre shot apart, roughly 60 to 90 yards. They were crested with hedges and thorns over which they could only see O'Neill's calibre men's head. They were strengthened with flankers and sconces of stone of earth and revetted with palisades and wattling. The barricades were also flanked with trenches on the high ground to the left and right, which were also plashed. Mountjoy had to wait until the 2nd of October to launch his main attack, but after four hours and penetrating the third barricade, he was forced to retreat. And a third attack in the fifth fired no better. With casualties and sickness and desertion destroying his army, Mountjoy pulled back to the dock on the 9th of October. After which O'Neill withdrew, but then again Mountjoy re-entered when he found out that O'Neill left the pass on the 17th. Francis Stafford reporting of the structures that I vow unto God that I did never see a more villainous piece of work, an impossible thing for an army to pass without intolerable loss. Needless to say, Mountjoy ordered the army to demolish the fortifications before moving north. What Mountjoy didn't comment on, but it's apparently anyone who visits the site today, is it the sighting of the barricades? It was said by Williams that he had to go into the pass to view the defence, but the pass entrance is indeed very small, it's around 250 metres long. And the placement on the other side of the small rise shows that O'Neill made use of a reverse slope defence. It is especially effective when the defender is vulnerable to long-range fire systems, and in this instance, English artillery. Mountjoy didn't actually bring any this time, but it was certainly available to him. This defence work, works at its best when the flanks are secured, and in this case, uh, they were, thereby forcing frontal attacks. Oh, sorry. They were just running in between here, and this was secured by the high ground here and here. And this drops away into where the railway is now, and then it just goes further up here. So, and what they wasn't so stupid as to actually try and force it down blindly. They tried to find another way around over uh, to the west, but there was, there was no way. I think this was only basically go. As an attacker advanced, the defences only came into view at the same time as they came into range of the defenders' firepower. And this type of deployment demonstrates that beyond the Except the talent for engaging in attacks on English forces that took maximum advantage of Irish mobility and small unit discipline and short range firepower, he had demonstrated a keen eye for steady field fortifications. His ability to construct imposing defences on the routeways was again encountered by Mountjoy the following year. This time it was at the Blackwater. After forcing the trenches, as we previously mentioned, he pushed further into Tyrone, was engaged by O'Neill near Benburb, after which O'Neill retreated to the pass of Tower Messon which was described as fortified with plashing, trenches and other devices. Despite Mountjoy and Fine Morrison's claims of success, Mountjoy never attempted to force the pass. And in fact, Tobermesson's defensive strength can only be speculated upon. But when Mountjoy returned, the forces went into Dungan the following year. Now this is after Conceal, when essentially the Irish are spent in force. Mountjoy did not attempt to pass. He actually decided to go further on down, uh, three miles downstream in fact, where he built the fort of Charmont and then went to Dungannon, so he never entered Tobermesson, so you only guess exactly how bad it was. But in some cases, fortifications appear not to be intended to stop or block a passage, but only to provide a deterrent to provide protection to troops whose intention was not to turn back crown advances, but merely to harass them. And this is seen again against the unfortunate Mount George during his November 1600 campaign, during his retreat out of Ulster. 
After establishing the fort at Mount Norris, Mountjoy planned to withdraw his force to Dundalk, but O'Neill had reoccupied the Moray Pass, so Mountjoy was compelled to take a difficult route via Carnifer. See, I had to come through here, now you have to go down this direction. So why exactly was he going down to take such a circuitous route? It was likely that O'Neill had entrenched at Fallon as Mountjoy passed along the eastern bank before making a rather difficult crossing into the narrow water. You might notice that Mountjoy takes a rather indirect route out of Ulster. Even if he was constrained to march via Carnifer, it would be expected that taking the western shore would have been the most expedient path. Instead, he marched around the eastern shore and makes a difficult river crossing at Narrowater Castle, a crossing that would cost Mountjoy's secretary's life and give five to Marsh the job opportunity. He saw O'Neill's men march, once he actually decided to make this crossing, he saw O'Neill's men march south and take up positions further south to camp towards Carnifer, so he saw them start to leave this position. So, why? What was the point? Had O'Neill fortified or obstructed uh, the pass, but uh, Mountjoy Marsden neglected to tell us about it. They both forgot to tell us that the Mount, Moray Pass had been reoccupied, and it was uh, the master master, Ralph Lane, who played the whistle on from Dublin. So, we decided to look at this in a question of exactly why they missed this. So, what did we decide to stop doing this and start doing archaeology? And uh, fieldwork, we started to examine uh, the earlier maps. And we noticed there was features along here that predated the, uh, the, the, the larger house, Fallon Park House. Uh, while it was in its prime up here, these were in dilapidation. And that's what they look like now. Uh, here we are, there, 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 and there. Now, uh, the examination, uh, the, when we actually got them in fieldwork, and this was actually no easy matter because this is all heavily overgrown, uh, they're approximately 15 to 20 metres in diameter, each 60 to 70 metres apart, and roughly the same distance from the road. And they all have good views of the road below. Are these the remains of one age sconces? Certainly well they were well positioned to pour flying apart under the Mount Joyce force, and therefore well worth avoiding. Okay, so we mix the crossing and starts to march down the other side here, bypassing Fathom. And when the march was continued the next day, found that O'Neill had constructed new fortifications along the line of march and on high ground to the right flank, described as met by many as many trenches and half moons, one higher than the other, from which as from so many castles without any annoyance to themselves, they could play upon us. Now two things became clear in this example. One, the structures could be rapidly rebuilt, overnight in this case, Either that or Neil was especially unfortunate to have previously been built in advance. But it also demonstrated that Neil could get his men to perform manual labour. In the Crown Army, this was a job normally assigned to pioneers or civilians that were pressed into service, and certainly Docker and Derry complained that they had great difficulty in anything built by a soldier, even if the work was to their benefit. Troops carrying out manual labour, this is normally a fleet described as Dutch Reformed or Mars and Nassau, which were taking place concurrently in the Low Countries. It's also clear that the fortifications are being used as a force multiplier to enable smaller Irish forces to engage with larger concentration of Crown troops. It was estimated by uh, Mountjoy, and he was ever the man they were estimated Irish strength, that uh, there was only about 500 troops occupying this pass. Mountjoy had the entire field force, but what was left of the entire field force of the Irish army had up for 2,000 troops, and still they felt they could engage them. Uh, 
After examining the Council engagements during the war, we also found that Irish defences were not just for positioning troops behind, others were built to restrict tactical mobility of the most dangerous element in the battlefield, and that was the English horsemen. In the head-to-head encounters, the English horsemen were always superior, as they were armoured and used stirrups, and thereby enabled them to use a couch lance, which equals shock action, compared to something that basically the Irish cavalry couldn't match. Lord Deputy Mountjoy noted that the Irish always preferred to fight without the threat of English horse. It was noted that the fort of Asai was trenched in feed horses and the road to Blackwatertown in August 1598 was blocked with pits and stakes to block uh, at the bottom, known uh, much later as through the loop. Um, but also at the Blackwater, we saw the most effective use of these defences, uh, supported by a bank crested with thorns and palisados, approximately five foot high, fronted by a ditch bisecting the battlefield. And this is always called O'Neill's Ditch, and sometimes in the historical accounts they start to say that O'Neill had a fire entrenched, or this was somehow hotly contested, but it certainly never was. In fact, it was never defended throughout the, uh, the engagement. The primary role appeared to be to separate the horse and the infantry. Once done, O'Neill committed his horse to destroy the English regiments and the killing them on the other side. At no point did the English cavalry manage to cross this barrier, whereas the 1st Regiment under Sir Richard Percy managed to climb over without any interference from the Irish. This was an exceptionally successful tactic which was repeated uh, both at the defeat of Sir Conrad Clifford Army in the Curtis of 1589 and again at Lord Deputy Mountjoy in September and October 1600 in the Maury Pass. And in fact, the efforts of the English cavalry at the Maury Pass are quite well documented. They have very graphic stories of um, Sir William uh, Godolphin was the, the head of the cavalry and in a, in a vain attempt to try and support troops in the other side of the barricade, we're told that um, the Irish uh, cavalrymen that wouldn't fire on him and dashed the brains of the horse about his master's face. So that's a kind of a close range action that was going on. And again, they were trapped outside, they couldn't get in. So I think you probably had about enough of that. We'll quickly wrap this up. Uh, as I stated at the start, a common image of a counter between O'Neill and the Crown were hit and run skirmishes. And hopefully, this has shown that while this may have been an element that was in no way representative of the Irish way of war at the time, fortifications were widely used by the Irish. But these were built on terrain ranging from passes, bogs and woods, but also open plains, rivers, offshores and beaches. They were used for point defence to secure locations, uh, but they were also used to maximise the effect of the widespread adoption of firearms by the Irish. They were used to restrict English mobility of English troops both tactically and at the other level by isolating garrisons, cutting them off from resupply and limiting the ability to provide mutual support. And this has demonstrated a willingness and ability to adapt and enhance the natural landscape for their military advantage. And I mean, you'd have to see how this could, the benefit of this, strategically speaking. The use of linear defences uh, worked to stop, you have to remember that they stopped the main English summer campaigns in 1597, 1600, and 1601, dead in their tracks. Thanks very much.